Well, good morning. Xinan Kwai La. I hear a few Xinan Kwai La's responsive. Thank you. Amazing how the ban on fireworks changed the atmosphere, didn't it? I'm used to fireworks right next to my window. Didn't happen as much this year. Well, I want to say thank you. It's a privilege to be here this morning to share with you. Um, anytime we get a chance to open up the Word and to think about what God is saying and doing in our lives, uh, it's just a tremendous opportunity. So I want to start by praying. And let's ask the Lord just to speak to our hearts and really do what He wants to do in our lives this morning. Let me pray. Father, we, we, we can't do anything without you. Um, we know that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we know that right now, right here, there are many things possibly happening in our hearts and in our lives. And we just ask that you would um, help us to hear you well. I know it's very hard sometimes to stop and to listen, but I pray that that would be part of our morning here, that we would stop and listen to you, that we would allow you to do what you need to do in our hearts. And we thank you for this opportunity to hear from you. We trust you, Lord, with everything. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning what I'd like to do is, as was read this morning, John, in chapter 1, is I'd like to just take you on my own personal journey of studying this passage. And one of the joys, I think, of studying the scriptures is that you read them over and over, and there are oftentimes simplistic passages that you'll, you'll find. Uh, you, you can read many times, but then as you discover or read them over and over, sometimes you just discover gold. And it's almost as if you're, you're panning for gold uh, as you read the scriptures. And sometimes you go, aha, this is something that I need to sit on and just enjoy and, and ruminate over. And so this morning I want to share with you some of the thoughts that I've had as I've read this passage. Now, first of all, for most of you, I'm you're sure you've read John chapter 1, and it begins with this incredibly poetic scene. Uh, you hear John uh, referring to Jesus as uh, the Word and the beginning, and it's, it's extremely poetic. And I've always thought, um, when I first uh, started to, to do ministry, people recommended to me, well, you should recommend the book of John for, for new believers to read. And I always thought, well, why would I do that? The first part of John is so confusing that I would never want to recommend that. So I started to change my thought, and I started to recommend the book of Mark, because Mark is so straightforward and it's, it's full of power, especially with guys. I thought, Mark is a man's book. You know, it's straightforward and it's short. Um, but what I've come to realize over the years is that there are different things within Mark that are extremely complex as well and very uh, in, enjoyable to, to study, deep-minded. But there are also things within John that are simple-minded but extremely deep. And this is one of those passages, and I just want to read it with you one more time. Uh, starting in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with, his two, with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, again, at first glance, this passage seems very simplistic. You just see, you have this first meeting of the disciples. It doesn't seem at first glance like there's a whole lot going on. You're just getting an introduction to this relationship between Jesus and his new disciples. But again, I want to delve into it a little bit and slowly unpack it so that we can see some of the depth, I think, within this scripture. So looking at verse 35, you, you begin, and it says, The next day again, John was standing with his two disciples. So we begin this scene by John standing there with two of his disciples. Now, we're not certain exactly where they were standing. We're not, we are, the, the author doesn't give us that. He doesn't tell us if there was a crowd around them uh, of other disciples. But here are John's two disciples with him. But the key to this is the, is the opening part of the section. It says, the next day again. And if you study the scriptures at all, you'll realize context is incredibly important whenever you're trying to understand what's happening. And so when he says, the author says, the next day again, you realize that something previous to that was very important to this part of it. So I want to read that just to give you a little clue. And we could always go back farther and farther. You can always, everything... Uh, the whole impacts the part, so we want to just talk a little bit about what was the next day or the previous day like. So in verse 29, it says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, this is the same phrase that John used previous, but he adds on to it a little bit more. Um, now, to me, in, to, me uh, to you and I, in today's context, the idea of behold the Lamb of God uh, is not a significant phrase, but to a culture where everyone saw the Passover sacrifice on a yearly basis to represent the blood that was, was shed and paid the price for them and put on the doorposts in, from Egypt, from their uh, 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 exile from Egypt, we realize that this is a significant phrase. Behold the Lamb of God carries incredible connotation. It's not a simple phrase that we pass over. And so when John cries out about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there is incredible significance behind that. And he's revealing to the entire crowd who Jesus is. Now, if this were Mark, it, he might say something like, um, and Jesus said, please don't say that too loud, because Mark was never wanting, you know, had this idea of Jesus never wanting his deity to be revealed too early in the process. But this is John, so uh, we see it here. And in verse 30, he says, This is he who, who said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And so John gives this confusing phrase, but only after uh, knowing who Jesus is do we understand that, of course, Jesus came before him. And then he makes this interesting statement. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So what John says 
is that I didn't, I didn't know Jesus. Now, this is fascinating because Jesus and John were relatives. Now, if I, I don't know exactly the extent of, you know, what their relationship was previous to this, but my guess is that Jesus and John had some sort of knowledge of each other, that they knew each other. So when John says, I myself did not know him, you know, I'm, I'm really understanding this as he didn't understand who he really was, who Jesus really was. And so he says, when I saw that dove come and remain on him, it was, my eyes were opened. And then he goes on in 33, and he says, I myself did not know him. Again, he repeats that same phrase, which is, again, fascinating to your own cousin. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And he clearly says what his meaning is here. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So the pretext of this John chapter, of this John passage in 35, is the revelation of who Jesus really is. Um, and it's fascinating to, to really think about what was the reaction of the disciples around him? What were they thinking as they see John, their mentor, you know, who's not a, a small man, I would think, and especially in personality and uh, from what we know about him, but what was their reaction to this idea of understanding this is the Messiah? This is the one John came to make a way for. And so this is the pretext. And so if we go back to verse 36, it says, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said again, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, have you ever thought to wonder how Jesus received this kind of title. You know, I don't know about you, but I would imagine there was a twinge of anxiety. Or, you know, I don't, I'm not sure, but it wasn't excitement. You know, it was, okay, it's responsibility. You know, I would much rather be introduced as, here comes the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Or, welcome the Almighty. Behold, the Almighty has come. But John introduces Jesus with his ultimate gift of sacrifice. It's, it's almost a saying, before you stands the love of God and demonstrated, he will demonstrate it for us. And so this is the title that he bears, and this is how John introduces him. And so as he walks by, uh, this is what he says, and then 37 continues, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, again, if you study the scriptures, I think one of the most interesting things is just how do they treat um, the disciples, the gospel writers treat the disciples. You know, if you look at, again, looking at Mark, and I've enjoyed Mark over the years, but you'll see the disciples do nothing right in the book of Mark. Um, you know, and different authors give them at least a little credit for some of the things that they do right. But here, John at least gives them a little credit. They actually followed. Um, they got up, and they went and did what, what, was, what was there, what was, what was to be done. And so um, I do think it's fascinating, too, because John does not say directly, go and follow him. But you see this intention of John of giving them almost permission 
here's the Savior. My job is done with you. Go and follow him. It's that example of John's uh, incredible heart of I must decrease so that he might increase. And so these disciples do this. They follow Jesus. And then in 38 it says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Now, this is in the uh, ESV. It says, what are you seeking? Um, but I personally happen to like the NIV that was read earlier. Uh, it's a little more direct translation, and I think it's even in the Chinese, but it really is. Jesus turns to them and says, what do you want? Now, if this is me, and there are two, you know, I'm walking down the road, and I realize two people are following me, and I turn to face them, when I say, what do you want, I'm kind of annoyed. I'm like, I'm a little nervous about what, what's going on here? Why are you following me? But fortunately, in the scriptures, I'm not Jesus. Uh, I think Jesus' reaction is completely different than that first intended. And so when I first read this section, I think that's what I think, is this Jesus is annoyed with them. But the truth is, is that Jesus, I think, turns to them with open arms and interest in their lives and says, what do you want? Now, over the years, one of the things that I've enjoyed doing when I study the scriptures and have taken some um, different classes is I've gotten a chance to take some seminary-level classes which have taught me a little bit about reading the scriptures and about how to study. And most of the time when you delve into a new uh, academic field of any kind, uh, it's interesting because there becomes a whole new uh, language that you have to speak in order to really understand. It's so frustrating to me. It's like, I just want to know the concepts. I don't want to learn a new language. Um, and so when I was studying, taking this one class, I had to read a book by Richard Pratt, and it was called He Gave Us Stories. It was a nice, thick volume. Of course, it's got to be thick. None of, there's no thin volumes when it comes to taking classes. And so I delved into this, this uh, book, but one of the things I really appreciated in Pratt's book was this idea that he shared within it that was very simple about studying the scriptures. And he said there's three ways that you can look at the scriptures. And this has helped be a backdrop for me as I've studied them over the years since then. He said you can look at it as a mirror. You can look at the, the uh, this is specifically biblical narratives or biblical stories. You can see them as a mirror. You can see them as a window. And you can see them as a painting. Now, this idea of a mirror, I think we often do. We're often looking at ourselves, uh, at the scriptures as we read them, and, and thinking, what does this mean to me? And this is a very important question. How do the scriptures directly influence my life? And I think we naturally do that. But when it comes to a window, sometimes we'll, we'll do this, but this takes repetition of, of learning. It's the idea of you're looking for specific detail when it comes to what the event was happening out there. You're kind of almost doing a historical analysis of the story. But when it comes to a painting, this is the one that I think we often skip over. And a painting is really an idea of what was the author really trying to say? Now, I'm not much of an art person. Um, I, I value art. I'm more of a sports guy. Uh, you know, and I don't know if those can go hand in hand. Maybe they can in some people's worlds that I don't see that a whole lot. The quarterback who loves art, it can't happen. Okay. Um, but, you know, for me, art is one of these things that I kind of value from a distance. 
And I really think that there's incredible nuances within a painting. And if you talk to anybody who loves art, they'll say one of the pure joys is just to study a painting over time and to look at it. And it's amazing when you start to look at paintings and just spend time watching and observing them, you see small nuances within them that the painter wanted to communicate. You see different um, forms of light and dark within the painting. You can see, um, from depending on the distance that you spend or where you're, where you're standing, why did the painter put more paint on this section? Why can you see it? It's so thick versus uh, other places within the painting. You even ask questions of why is this person in the foreground? Why is this the focus of this painting? And it's just, a, in a lot of ways, it's like, what, you know, same with movie scenes. There's a lot of similarities in that kind of art world. And so, as I look at this passage, and I hear Jesus say, what do you want? I start to ask, what was the author trying to communicate to us? And here is this Jesus turning to them. He didn't have to. Jesus could have kept walking all the way home until, to kind of almost test them to see if they would follow. But he turns to them, to these two men, and he says, what do you want? Now, this question is one that you can answer in a variety of ways. You know, at first they could have quickly said, well, we're hungry. Can we have something to eat? We're thirsty. Can we have something to drink? We're tired. We need rest. There's all kinds of things that kind of can quickly come into your mind that are very pragmatic. But on a different level, this question is incredibly deep. What do you really want? What do you really want? You know, the asker of this question changes how you respond, doesn't it? If I were to ask you today, what do you want? My limitations incredibly influence how you will respond to that question. You know, if, I, if you ask, say, John, I'd like a drink of water, okay, I can handle that. No problem, I'll go get you a drink of water. John, I'd like eternal peace and hope is a little bit harder to fathom for myself to answer. I can't answer that question. But here you have Jesus, whom John the Baptist has just told them, this is the Son of God. He turns to them and he says, what do you want? So I've been thinking about this all week. What do I really want? And that's a hard question to answer, isn't it? I mean, every time I kind of come up with a, a solution or an answer to that question, I go, is that really what I want? Is that really what I want? And I think God is giving us that question to wrestle with today. You know, what do you really want? And you know, I think the response of the disciples, whether they meant it or not, is incredibly profound. What was their response? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, if I'm visualizing this scene in my through my own eyes, I'm seeing the, the pan of the movie come into these two men's, you know, they're, they're about, they're framed in, and 
they, they start to kind of look at each other with big eyes and, and you know, kind of do the, the little head thing. And they go, uh, where are you staying? But the truth of this is, where are you staying is such a profound response. Because, you know, it's not physical or material. It's relational. It's relational. And I love this thought that they wanted to go and be with him. That they just wanted to be with him. And how does he respond? As he so often does in the scriptures, he says, he said to them, come and you will see. Come and you will see. I mean, this is the response of Jesus so many times in so many circumstances to all of us. And so what happened? So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, scholars wonder about what the tenth hour was. Uh, most people uh, discern it as about four o'clock in the afternoon, I think, as the NIV translates it. It really depends on, uh, you know, some people think it was 10 a.m., it's really irrelevant in many ways. The idea is that they spent time with him. Now, what do you think they talked about? You know, if you had three, four hours with Jesus, what would you ask him? I mean, I thought maybe it would probably be good to have a list, wouldn't it? I should prepare this. But off the top of my head, I was thinking, what about dinosaurs? What really happened to dinosaurs? I mean, I'd like, you know, I'm... Wouldn't mind knowing about that. Two single guys. Who am I going to marry? You know, you, can you tell me about my wife a little bit? I mean, that's, you know, probably what's on their mind. Or maybe what about, why are you here? What's your purpose for me? Now, I don't know exactly what the conversation was like. I wish that we could be, you know, flies on the wall. And for some reason... John has eliminated uh, this from the, the, the text. Um, again, through his artwork, this wasn't important. But the truth that, the only thing that we know from this conversation is the result. And the result is they were never the same. They were never the same. And so it says this following it. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. Now we need to stop here for a second. You guys all know Simon Peter. This is the react for ready, fire, aim guy. I mean, he is the man who lops off the ear, the man who um, inserts his foot in his mouth all the time where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to him. He's always boldly proclaiming. He's always doing something. He's, he's never, in his mind, wrong. But he's always brash. Now, imagine being Simon Peter's brother. Now, I don't know, maybe some of you know, but I don't know if Andrew was older or younger, but I don't think it really mattered. I mean, my guess is that Peter probably both bullied Simon, or uh, Andrew, and probably protected him at the same time. But no matter what, he knew exactly what Simon was like. And what I think is fascinating is that 
it says he first found his own brother Simon. He didn't go to his parents. He didn't go to his best friend. As soon as he leaves Jesus, he thinks, I need to tell Simon about this guy. And what does he do? And he finds Simon and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Again, he doesn't say it, hey, I think you need to consider this, which you might say to a bold, brash person. You know, why don't you come check this out? Or this is a good, you know, maybe consider this. We think we found the guy. He proclaims it. We have found the Messiah. There's no doubt in that statement. And so as he proclaims it, he does something even bold after that. He brought him to Jesus. Now, I don't know if Simon was excited about that idea or if he was skeptical of Andrew, but the idea of probably leading Simon anywhere was probably not an easy task. So the idea that he reacted in this way, he brought him to Jesus, was a bold statement and and a source of change in his life. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times we talk about evangelism, and it's this huge word. It's not a big deal here, is it? He spent time with Jesus. He thought of others. We found him. Come and see. Yeah, I love that. And then it says, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, which literally means the rock. So we have the first, very first, the rock here. I love that idea that here is the rock of the church. The beginning, he, he is the, the one who will become the church, the, the father of the church. He's, it starts right here. It starts from Andrew going and boldly telling him. It starts even before just spending time with Jesus. It starts with hearing or getting up and following him. And then it starts from hearing John the Baptist just saying, behold, the Lamb of God. Just this small story, which seems insignificant, ends up to tell Peter's entire story and how the church comes to be. Now this morning, I think, I do want us to take a second as we hear these things and to look in the mirror. It's important to, to consider um, what do we hear. And so the first question, I just want to ask three questions. Um, do you know that he is the Lamb of God? Now, you know, we've all, or many people have grown up in a church or heard these things often, but do you really, at a heart level, understand that he is your Savior? He's taken away your sins. He's the one who has paid and taken on the price that you and I deserve. This is easy to breeze over, but there is no more significant statement to us today than behold the Lamb of God. Whether you've known Jesus your whole life or you've never even considered him, the fact that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world changes everything that we do. 
It changes us. Do you really know that? Second, what do you really want? Um, as you stand before him, what do you really want? I would encourage you to wrestle with this this week. Ask yourself, what do I want? You know, and guess what? Oftentimes I, I hope that what you end up wanting is just to be with him. Just like the disciples responded. And then finally, do you really want to come and see? Now, sometimes I, I know what I really want, but I just want to solve it. You know, it, it's, I don't say that out loud. I don't, um, I don't, you know, mentally think about it, but that's how I live. Do I really pray about what I want? You know, prayer demonstrates faith in who you're trusting in. If I really want him to be a part of my life, if I come and see, then he's involved. Then he's the one who leads my life. Do you really want to come and see? Now, I was going to close here, but I wanted to, it was interesting, two days ago I was reading uh, through... Uh, my Bible, I'm trying to read through the Bible in a year, and you know, lo and behold, I came across a very um, familiar passage to all of us, and it's Psalm 23. And the first thing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I thought, wow, it doesn't become more applicable than this, does it? Now, I want to be careful here, because I do think the Lord wants us to come with come to him with our needs. I don't want to say that we shouldn't have needs. But I do think that our wants need to be put at the feet of Jesus. And as I read uh, this passage from Psalm 23, I shall not want, the fascinating part to me is that just like the disciples, it ends in relationship. It ends in relationship with the Lord. And so, as you think about your wants, as you think about your desires, you know, he's the one who wants to meet you. He's the one who wants to be with you. He's the one who wants to hear your heart. And so I just want to close by reading Psalm 23 and then pray for us. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, what a good thing it is to be with you. I thank you that you say to each of us, come and see. Lord, I pray that 
all of us, whatever is happening in our lives, that we would just long for you. That we wouldn't just long for your solutions or your power, but that we would long for you. Eternity, eternal life is spending time with you. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We want to know you. And Lord, as we know you, I thank you that you, just like David, give us this ability to deal with our circumstances, to deal with our problems, to deal with our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you want to be with us. And thank you, Lord, that you enjoy us. In Jesus' name, amen.